the Lax Factor Podcast. What is up, College Across fans? You're watching episode number 232 of the Lax Factor Podcast. I am your host, Ted Hoost, the hardest working man in the podcast game or in the lacrosse podcast game. Anyway, uh, before I dive into all of this, as always, you can go to laxfactor.com. You can support us that way. Get branded t-shirts. You can watch our videos and listen to the audio podcast here. You can get uh, t-shirts that are just random t-shirts that I designed related to lacrosse, and you can watch our strategy videos. But uh, before I dive into my top 10, by the time I got through all the research and everything I've done for these teams, I kind of switched up drastically about 14, 15 through 11. So I'll talk about that at the end of this episode. But right now, without further delay, because I've got to get through these, I want to dive into my my top 10 now. I want to start with my top 10. My number 10 team is Penn. They were 13-5 and five last year, 3-3 three and three in the Ivy. They lost to Rutgers in the NCAA second round. Penn has a load of talent returning, including All-American midfielder Sam Handley. My only gripe with Handley, he turns the ball over a lot, 73 points to 52 turnovers, but the dude's a beast. He can do everything, and he does it well. Shooting percentage is a little low. High-volume guy, though, and he ends up you know, delivering when you need him to. He demands plenty of double teams, and he'll probably have a 75-plus point season from the midfield in 2023. Also back, honorable mention, All-Americans, B.J. Farrar, Brandon Lavelle at D, Peter Blake at D, Piper Bond at Shortstick D mid. They bring skilled guys back that have experience on the defensive side of the ball. And then from an offensive standpoint, as you go through their roster, they get pretty much all of their top scores back. On the defensive side, they get pretty much all of their top contributors back in terms of being on the field. Their only holes in cage, Birkinshaw is out, as is Jamie Zuzzi, their faceoff guy from last year. But barring absolute shitheads taking over uh, the faceoffs and in cage for Penn, this team should still be able to hang in the top 10 to top 15 all season long thanks to legit offensive firepower mixed with experience returning on defense. Now, key returners, as I said, Handley, he was 36 and 37 last year, 27.5% shooting with 52 turnovers. So you work on the shooting a little bit, you work on cutting out some of those turnovers, and Handley is set to have yet another first-team All-American year as as the best midfielder in the country. Uh, Dylan Gergar attack, 52 goals, 17 helpers last year, 31.3% shooting. He's back. Gabe Fury was 16 and 16. Cam Rubin, 21 and eight Ben Smith 19 and eight James Shipley 15 and eight you see they have a lot of talent coming back on uh, from last year's very successful team VJ Farrar LSM 19 cost turnovers 55 GBs two goals six helpers off 33 percent shooting so that's not too bad for your LSM uh, Brandon Lavelle uh, defender 11 cost turnovers 24 GBs you kind of go through the list here and you see they've got experience coming back all over I would have just about put Penn in at number eight, number nine, but the fact they lose their starting goalie and a very solid faceoff guy, uh, that resulted in them getting my 10 spot. I'm trying to weigh last year's success against what I think they have back on their roster. I've gotten it wrong a couple uh, a couple of times in previous videos. Like an example, I had Brown at number 12, and I went with that. For my last video, when I actually had to put my poll in, I Brown lost enough both offensively, defensively, all over the field that I ended up bumping them out of my top 20. So I'm kind of working this out completely on the fly here. But uh, I think that if they can find a goalie 
that can save the rock at a 55% clip like Birkinshaw did. Birk- Birkinshaw was 56.6% last season is what I have here. You know, if they can find someone to be serviceable in cage between 53, 55%, which is, it's asking a lot, but with a, a solid defense in front of them, they could do that. Then I say giddy up and this t- team wins 10 or 11 games and makes the NCAA tournament. If they get roasted at the dot and have a goalie that's about as effective as Swiss cheese, 10 wins will be their absolute ceiling, and that may not be good enough to get them in without winning the Ivy League tournament or something like that. It might be, but I, in the end, Penn, I think I, I don't think they're going to disappoint. I think whoever they put in pipe is going to be serviceable. They'll find a face-off guy to win the Rocket at, at 50%. And one thing I haven't talked about at all is newcomers. Guy, I've talked about transfers for all of these teams. I have not talked about incoming freshmen and how they might help, partly because it's never a guaranteed thing. You know, you, you see it even at some of the best schools these you know some of the best players that come in end up not contributing all that heavily as freshmen so I purposely kind of avoid it and I'm just talking known quantities because I think that's the fairest way to at least come up with a preseason uh, top 20 and then as the season gets underway all bets are off and it's based on what have you done for me lately so I think that Penn should be you know one of the favorites to win the Ivy I like Yale up there right with him who we're going to talk about because Yale is my number nine team. And I do think that the Ivy is going to go between Cornell as the favorite. And then I think Yale and Penn are going to be below them. And then who knows beyond that. But anyway, Yale is my number nine team in my poll, 12 and five last year, four and two in conference, lost to Princeton in the NCAA tournament quarterfinals. Yes. Yale is another team that barely slipped up last season. Their worst loss was to Penn State. Not great. They played terrible in the first quarter and the third and fourth quarters in that game. Had a solid second quarter. Um, they paid uh, – let me see here. Where was I? Where was I? Um, okay, so, yeah, after losing to Penn State, each of their four losses after that were all to NCAA tournament teams and all were Ivy League foes. They played poorly in a couple of those losses, but the Ivy was a gauntlet, and they made it out at 4-2 and two in league play. That's not too bad. Matt Brandau being back is a monster reason most should be on board with Yale being and maybe finishing in the top 10. As I've said in an early epi- earlier episode, Brandau, a first-team All-American a season ago, he, to me, is the best player in the country overall. He does everything well. He does it quietly but with swag at the same time, which is a weird dynamic. He'll dodge, he'll dodge on you and win. He'll find open space while you're sleeping and win. He'll throw a dime to a cutter and win. He scraps for loose balls. He rides, and he leads this team by example. He's a top returning scorer in the country, so statistically I'm not even all that far off. He finished second in points nationally with 99 points, good for 5.82 points per game. His 3.35 goals per game was good for sixth in the country, 2.43 assists per game, had him sitting at 12th in the country, shooting percentage of 41.3%, which that sat him 27th nationally, but almost every guy that was ahead of him in terms of shooting percentage, they were off-ball guys that typically have higher shooting percentages. Brandau is not an off-ball guy. Him putting up a shooting percentage up of 41.3% with as much as he carries the ball and creates for himself, that's putting him in the top 3% in terms of overall players and shooting capabilities because you know guys like him typically have a much lower shooting percentage. 
Um, the truth is only a couple of guys that play the sport of college across can hang with Brandau and do the things he does. Now I'm officially a Brandau fanboy, and I've been outed as such. So I can, I can deal with that. But now let's talk about everybody else that's back, back to help out on offense. Second year guys, Leo Johnson, Chris Lyons, Johnson, 64 points that he mirrors Brandau in that he's a clear 50, 50 threat in terms of how he generates offense. Lyons, a bit more of a goal hawk. Uh, Brad Sharp, another second year, he put up 36 points a season ago, and he can hurt a defense in multiple ways. I think he was like 19 and 19 or 18 and 18 or some crap like that. I guess 18 and 18 it would be have, would have to be what he was. Or maybe he was 19 and 17. I'm starting to think that. Yeah, I digress, though. Thomas Bragg, veteran sniper. Dude has one of the hardest shots in all of college lacrosse. He's back to smoke keepers from deep. And then to stop myself from going on and on and on, Yale is bringing back almost everyone that factored heavily last season. They do, they do lose Tevlin, who I think went 13 and 13, and he's a true two-way midi. But I, he might even be in my notes here to talk about in a bit. Uh, Nicholas Ramsey is back at the dot, and the guys that played behind him last season are all pretty solid in terms of if he were to go down. They have some guys that still won more than they lost last year playing behind him. They'll need to win 55% this season because, as I said, Brian Tevlin and veteran mauler Chris Fake will both be running around for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish in 2023. The, Bulldog, eh, the Bulldogs do bring back some guys with serious experience, but you have to imagine losing two honorable mentions all-Americans, it's obviously going to hurt you uh, and be felt a little bit. Uh, Jared Paquette is back after having a solid first season as a starter. He stopped 52.3% of shots he faced and finished with a 12-5 and record, starting all 17 games for the Bulldogs. Paquette had some off days, uh, but he showed well in the NCAA tournament specifically. He went 50% in that first game against, who was it, St. Joseph's, and then he made 20 saves in the season-ending loss to Princeton. I think that was good for 58%. I think he gave up 14 goals made 20 stops. Uh, uh, Bryce uh, DeMuth and Michael Alexander, they both started every game of 2023. They're both back running around beating people with long poles. So Paquette should be in good hands, albeit some young guys are definitely going to have to show at uh, short stick D mid, and they're going to have to have some long poles step in and play, play big as well. As I said, in terms of key returners, Brando on attack, Leo John, Yale's one of those teams where everybody on offense is listed as an attackman. Uh, Brando, 57 and 42. Johnson, 35 and 29. Lions, 36 and 12. Brad Sharp, 19 and 17. I was right. Thomas Bragg, 25 and 5. I mean, these guys can all score, and they've got a bunch of role players below them that are going to do just fine behind them. And like I said, DeMuth on defense. Uh, Stusen is back on defense. He caused what was it, 15 turnovers last year, Michael Alexander uh, and Paquette, 52.3% uh, stopping rate in cage. So excellent. So yes, I am apparently a big Yale fan this year. They bring back a ton of experience and they relied heavily on a group of young players last year that were able to play at a very high level. If these dudes progress the way that I've heard they are and they're all ready to take that next step forward, this team is going to be very good offensively. They should be solid enough defensively to get by. They should be able to outscore some teams in some in some foot races in the Ivy. And I think they could finish the year in the top 10. I think they should finish the year in the top 10, and they could even kiss the top five a little bit. That's definitely possible and it just depends on how these guys develop and play in their second year starting because like I said four what is it three freshmen uh contribute you know were, were were three of their top four or five scorers last year that that's actually pretty incredible now my next team that I want to talk about here this is my number eight team and it's going to be 
Duke. Duke was a very good lacrosse team that had issues with playing well consistently in 2022. They started out 3-0 with a win over NCAA tournament team Vermont. They dropped what looked like a bad game to Jacksonville at the time, but Jacks ended up being a, a quality team. They lost to Loyola. That wasn't great, but losing to Syracuse was what guaranteed they would not make the NCAA tournament. A year later, things are still looking good in Durham. Brennan O'Neill's, of course, back, as is Dyson Williams, Andrew McAdory, Owen Caputo, Aiden Denenza, and a wealth of very uh, capable players beyond that. You can't, you can't also forget about uh, transfer Tommy Schelling from Lehigh. He put up 68 points for Lehigh a season ago, and like McAdory, he can get separation, draw slides, distribute the rock. So one thing I don't like is that Duke's attack, as, as has been the case here over the last few years, their attack is very crowded. You know, you end up having four guys that I know are vying for a time on attack, and it's been Williams, Dyson Williams, who's been kind of the odd man out as other guys have stepped in and started over him, and he's been forced to run as a fourth attackman at times. He's been forced to run out of the box, and he's still put up points admirably in those situations, but I, I wonder how it's going to go down this year because Schelling is an obvious experienced player at attack that can get, that gives you a true 50-50 threat, maybe even a little bit of a quarterback. You end up having O'Neal that can both dodge and rip shots from out top. He can play off ball and finish. And then you have somebody like McAdory, who's who's in the mix here, that they're also looking at maybe being a playmaker to open other guys up. So I don't know what that attack unit's going to look like. I assume all four of those guys will probably get a little bit of time. But once again, a guy as good as D Dyson Williams kinds of find, kind of finds himself being the odd man out, uh, even though he's going to get his time and he's going to get, put up points. But the dude has an incredible shooting percentage. He's just a goal hawk. And I would love to see him starting on attack. I just don't know if this is going to be the year because it looks like they may move McAdory down. You don't want two lefty finishers necessarily running around on attack. Not that it's going to kill you, but to have two guys that can create plays on attack that can beat their man easily on attack, and then even three with Williams on top of it, you, you, they might not be able to go wrong with that. Now, where was I here? I lost my spot in the notes. Okay, so uh, a crowded attack. Okay, and then at the faceoff dot, Jake Naso. He's back. The ACC has put forth a pretty brutal group of faceoff guys here. Notre Dame were the ones that kind of lost that battle last year. But Jake Naso, Duke is lucky to have him on the roster. He won 56.2% of his draws last year. And they also get uh, the pen transfer, Zuzi, who won 54.5% of his draws last year. So Duke has some depth now at the faceoff dot. They have options if things aren't going great for Naso. They can always let Zuzi come in and let him do his thing. So that's going to help Duke a great deal, especially once they hit ACC play, where they have to play some killers at the faceoff dot. Uh, Duke defensively, solid group of long poles coming back. Kenny Bauer, he's the mean cover guy. Tyler Carpenter, more of a cap you know, a more than capable LSM that can take the ball away and put points up in transition. Wilson Stevenson goes about his business quietly, but he had a, a team high 19 turnovers last year. Jake Caputo and Garrett Ledman are solid midfielders that can also cover and push in transition. So all in all, Duke's returning a defense that should hold up well, perhaps even hold up a little bit better than they did last year because they have experience coming back. Now, we didn't talk about the guys they lost, Nakai Montgomery, Joe Robertson. That goes without saying. Also, a tough loss is honorable mention All-American Mike Adler in cage. He posted a 55% save percentage last year. I'm not actually sure who's going to get the starting nod here in cage for Duke. Will Helm. His name is Will Helm. 
uh, D3 transfer from St. Lawrence. He's an interesting pickup in the portal. He's got a 56.8% save percentage over his career at St. Lawrence and stopped the rock at a 57.9% clip last year. He certainly adds depth in cage, and with his experience, he could probably hold up in the ACC if called upon. But legitimately, you know, in terms of where I try to snag a little bit of info here and there and a little bit of insight, uh, Duke is a dark place for me, and I don't know who they're going to end up running in cage. Uh, key returners, as I said, O'Neill went 35 and 21, Williams 43 and 9 a year ago, McAdory 23 and 16, Schelling 27 and 41 for Lehigh last year, Naso 5.62 faceoff percentage, uh, Garrett Ledman six cost turnovers, four goals, two helpers. So that's solid. Uh, Bauer took the ball away 16 times. Carpenter took the ball away 17 times. Stevenson 19 times, as I said. So they have solid returners all over the field. Uh, and as long as they can shore up their situation in cage, I think Duke is going to be a very tough out for anybody. No one's going to want to play them in the tournament. Uh, I think, like I said, if they could have trounced Syracuse instead of picking up that terrible L, that may have been enough to get them into the tournament last year. They played some inconsistent lacrosse over the last couple of seasons. They're always one of the best teams in the country overall. You never want to draw them come tournament time, but they haven't really found a groove and they haven't been clicking. Like you look at the roster that Maryland had last year offensively, they clicked like no offense I've seen in many, many moons. Virginia is an offense I think this year that's going to click because they were playing pretty good lacrosse at times last year. The year they won the national championship, forget about it. Um, so it's always tough to count Duke out overall, but if they find a groove and if they can finally gel for the first time offensively, you know, and I'm saying truly gel, this could be a Final Four team. They have that much talent. It's just a matter of making sure that these guys are playing within the system together and that they have good chemistry. My next team that I want to talk about here is going to be Rutgers, number seven, Rutgers. They were 15-4 and four a season ago, 4-1 and one in the big, lost to Cornell in the NCAA tournament semifinals. Uh, overall, there is a ton to like about Rutgers in 2023. Now, my first thought as I started reviewing teams, and more specifically, as I started to get into like my 12 through uh, 10, I started thinking, man, did I put Rutgers a little bit too high up here on my list. But now that I've kind of gotten through doing my research for them, I haven't done my research for five through one yet, but I've kind of already profiled a couple of those teams. I think seven is fair for Rutgers. I'm trying to find a happy medium between rewarding teams for what they did last year compared to what they do actually have coming back this year. So I think Rutgers seven through nine ranking is probably pretty fair for them. You know, because last season's success had to stand for something, I would suppose. Now, offensively, Ross Scott is back to jack people up. His 50 goals and 25 assists were a big reason Rutgers was right behind Maryland in the big last year and the year before. Uh, considering Mitch Bartolo and Ronan Jacoby are both gone, his contribution should be expected to jump a little bit. I see like an 80-plus season on the horizon for Scott. I don't think he's going to go through the roof and go 90 or 100 or anything, but I think he should put up points somewhere in the in the 80s. Shane Knobloch, Brian Cameron, all ready to go as well. They put up 48 and 45. Four points respectively. David Sprock was injured last year, but he's back and healthy. He put up 27 points from the midfield in 2021 for Rutgers. On the defensive side of the ball, Rutgers lost quite a bit overall. But once again, they've been good at using the transfer portal. Since COVID hit, Rutgers wasn't a great team leading into the the, the 
COVID canceled season and the COVID canceled season, they were downright bad, but coming out of COVID with the transfer portal kind of being fully online, they've been able to take advantage of the transfer portal in what the last two seasons. And now this will be the third season. They've done a good job in the transfer portal to make sure that they've replaced what they lost. So like I said, on the defensive side, they lost a couple of starters, a couple of honorable mention, all Americans. Is that them or is that the next team here? But either way back, Ethan Rawl, you know, no-brainer here. LSM, I think he was the second-team All-American last year. He might have even been the first-team All-American. Guy's a legit turnover-causing animal. Bobby Russo is also back, and Bryant transfer LeJean Jones. He'll likely see time on close defense. They also lost a pair of very good SSDMs. Why did I say SSDMs? That's weird. Uh, short stick D mids. Uh, so they got a transfer from Mount St. Mary's, Noah Daniels. That is a big get, as is John Miller of Bryant. Now, Daniels is a very good defender. And he put up nine goals and four assists last year for the Mount. So he'll be. Those are two very good additions here. Uh, they grabbed a pole. They grabbed two defensive midfielders, and that's going to help bolster that defense that had some question marks. Now they lose their goalkeeper. Also, have no fear because goaltender Kyle Mullen he transferred in from Harvard. He you know, not a huge uh, save percentage or anything like that. Let me see. I have it down here on my page. He was fifty point eight percent last year for Harvard. Harvard. I like the group that he has in front of him at Rutgers a little bit more, so I think he can improve upon that, but they just need him to be 51 to 53%, and they'll be in line for making the NCAA tournament. If this kid could propel, if this defense in front of him can play well, and he can get himself up into the 54-55, almost guaranteed they are an NCAA tournament team here. Uh, as we rich through, rip, rip through... Again, look at the key returners. Ross Scott, 50 and 25. Knobloch was 32 and 16. Brian Cameron, 34 and 10. Sprock, 17 and 10. Ethan Rawl, 31 caused turnovers. Noah Daniels, as I said, 13 caused turnovers. 44 GBs, 9 goals and 4 assists. He's the, I think what, the Bryant? No, the Mount transfer. Uh, short stick D mid. Bobby Russo, 12 caused, uh, caused turnovers. Lejean Jones, he's a Bryant transfer uh, defender slash LSM is what it said. 16 caused turnovers and 20 GBs and 4 goals. So so, like I said, they lost a couple of defenders uh, and a couple of short stick D mids. They replaced them with quality talent. And so long as these guys can just get online and, uh, you know, play at the same speed and do that early in their season, Rutgers is going to be good. Now, I admit, like I said, putting them in this spot is partly credit from last year's success. They've been playing at a high level the last two seasons, like I said, since COVID. Uh, they keep adding depth via the transfer portal. This year wasn't different. They added depth in just about every spot they needed, and their schedule is favorable early with Army being the only real tough test in theory early on. They're, you know, you never know how a team's season's going to go, but they have Army, I think, their third game of the year after two gimme games to start. So by the time they get to the Princeton game, which is in Piscataway, there's a good chance that they're either 5-1 and one, or if they can beat Army, 6-0 and oh, heading into that contest against Princeton. And then from there, they'll be tested almost every week between uh, Big Ten Conference foes. Uh, I think they'll have, you know, obviously they're going to have to run the gauntlet. They're going to have uh, Ohio State, which is going to be very tough. They're going to have Maryland, which is always really tough. Penn State could be a little bit improved here. Michigan's going to be a veteran group. I'm not sure they're going to be, you know, making a bunch of noise in the big, but they're not going to be an easy win necessarily. So they're going to have to handle their business but they have a schedule that will favor them a little bit so long as they don't drop any terrible games early. Now, we're going to talk about the last team that I have to talk about here, at least today in this podcast. It is my number six team, and that number six team is Notre Dame. Notre Dame. 
eight and four last year, five and one this year. So I'm going to rant a little bit here about my problem with Notre Dame. They're a cautionary tale for D1 college coaches that are making their schedules. Shore up your schedule or get left out of the NCAA tournament in odd and painful ways. This is what happened to Hopkins when Hopkins kind of started falling from, falling from grace, and it ended up costing Petro his job. Some people are going to roll their eyes at me, but hear me out for a second. You got Syracuse, you have Hopkins. They used to both play 12-game schedules. They would pretty much just play on weekends until they got later into the season, and then they would start playing weekday games. At least that's how Syracuse's was. But they would play 12-game schedules, and usually eight or nine of those teams were almost always ranked, and they'd have maybe one or two gimme games on that schedule with a mid someone middling there. And it ended up putting Hopkins in a position where they were one of the better teams in the NCAA and, and surely willing or worthy of making the NCAA tournament. But they would they would struggle because of their brutal schedule to just finish like six and five or six and six or something like that. There was a couple of years where it came right down to Hopkins. Are they going to finish above five, 500 or better or not? And that hurts them. Now, Notre Dame found themselves in that situation last year. They're, uh, they fell victim to the ACC having a down year. They were forced to play and beat Syracuse twice, and that ended up being two wins that did nothing to improve their overall strength of schedule and allow them to add quality wins. It did the opposite. It lowered their overall strength of schedule, and they had two wins that were worth almost nothing. The other the, the losses they had were all reasonable. They dropped non-conference matchups to Georgetown, Maryland, and Ohio State, and they did that in three consecutive games. They were they started one and three, picked up an easy win. They're two and three, heading into a matchup with Virginia. They lose that to drop to two and four, and then they didn't lose for the rest of the season from there. So they win six games back to back to back to back to back to back, whatever it is. The problem, their only quality wins were against Duke, who they did beat twice. And then North Carolina, who they uh, who struggled out of conference uh, on top of it, so it ended up not being as quality of a, of a of a win as they would have thought. The fact that the Irish had to face terrible Syracuse twice as part of the conference play that dragged their overall SOS down. Really, it dragged it into the toilet, and it became pretty clear once it came time for NCAA selection that their resume was not good enough to make the tournament. The issue, they haven't learned anything from those issues last year, and it looks like they're still, they haven't published their schedule officially, I don't think, at least not on their website yet. But from what I can see on Inside Lacrosse, because everyone else has published their schedules, it looks like they're playing 12 games again. Uh, you know, if the, if they go eight and four with the schedule they have, there's a very good chance they don't get into the tournament again. If they can finish nine and three with the schedule they have, then giddy up as long as they don't lose to any crap teams. But it's a trash schedule, and it's a shame because they have one of the most exciting offenses to watch in college across. Pat and Chris Cavanaugh are both back. And from what I'm hearing, Chris may make a huge jump forward in terms of his play, and he was already pretty good last year. Pat Cavanaugh is him. His 25 goals, 39 helpers from a season ago, were scored mostly in spectacular fashion. His swag is unequaled overall. Uh, his goal celebration game, tight, almost a la Kyle Marr of Hopkins from a couple of years ago. Uh, while he's a touch assist-heavy, 
Overall, in terms of numbers, he's still got my top pick for a guy that will be featured on SportsCenter's top 10 more than any other player in the country. He's probably going to win that award, too. Uh, also back, Eric Dobson, big boy midfielder. He brings heat. He's back along with Jake Taylor, Quinn McCann. They have offensive quality. And as is the case with many of the other teams in the top 10, Notre Dame did a very good job of picking up quality depth from the transfer portal where they needed it. Brian Tevlin, two-way midi from Yale, 13-13 and 13 last year, forced 12 turnovers, had 39 ground balls. He'll be running, playing two-way mid for Notre Dame this year. Chris Fake, another Yale transfer, absolute brute of a long pole. He caused 20 turnovers last year. Chris Conlon, another defensive transfer out of Holy Cross that will surely find his way onto the field for the Irish as well. They'll join guys like Jason Reynolds, Jose Boyer, Ross Bergmaster, and uh, I think that defensive unit that they're going to put on the field is going to easily be able to hold up in ACC play and in their out-of-conference play. The problem is you just can't take a weekend off and you got to make sure you win all the games you're supposed to win and that you don't drop anything that you're not supposed to or it's it's game over here. Uh, back in cage, also, All-American Liam Entman. He stopped 57% of the shots he faced last season. His only problem, a little bit inconsistent when they played good teams, but other than that, he is as good of a goalkeeper as you're going to find in Division One this year. With the defense that Notre Dame's putting in front of him, I think that that's going to allow his numbers to stay in that 55 to 57% range. Um, like I said, they lost some guys, but they made up for it in the transfer portal. They'll have to figure out some things at the faceoff dot. Will Lynch and uh, Colin Hagstrom, they did not get things completely figured out last year. So as we kind of rip through their roster, key returners, Kavanaugh, uh, the Kavanaugh brothers, uh, Eric Dobson, Jake Taylor, Brian Tevlin. And then as we talked about on defense, Liam Entman in cage, Conlon and Fake, both transfers in at D, um, Tevlin at short stick D mid. So, I mean, they, they have a wealth of players returning all over the place. I do think that Notre Dame should end up being one of the best five to seven teams in the country. They tend to kind of start a little slow. They play so few games and they start late. It's it's just kind of hard for them to catch up and stay in line with everybody else. But last year, by the end of the season, they looked like one of the best teams in college across. They just didn't build a resume to to prove it. And I'm afraid that could happen to them again this year. And as we kind of rip through it here, uh, they're going to have to play Virginia and North Carolina twice this season. So I think for Notre Dame to get into the NCAA tournament, they're going to have to go one and one against Virginia. You got to at least pick up a quality win against Virginia because you don't have that many shots at picking up really good quality wins like that. So they need to beat Virginia at least once. And then in that stretch where they play Georgetown, Ohio State, and Maryland, is that even what they do? Let me bring this up again here inside lacrosse, Notre Dame. I want to bring up their roster and schedule. That's not what I want. Here we go. All right, let's bring up the 2023. Okay, so here we go. Marquette, Cleveland. Okay, so I was right. Yeah, it's Georgetown, Maryland, and Ohio State. So across that stretch, the, uh, and I mean, that's three really good teams, Georgetown, Maryland, and Ohio State. Georgetown could be one of the top three teams in the country. Maryland, you can't call them you can't put them outside the top five because they're lacking you know they have a lot of question marks on offense until they prove they're not worthy Ohio State should be you know they should finish a top 10 team so across this stretch they really got to win at least two of those I think to really build their resume to the point that there's no question if they if they if they go one and two over this stretch here 
And then, you know, they only beat Virginia once. I mean, you kind of look at this. If they end up getting upset by any of these teams, like maybe Michigan pulls something out of their ass, who knows? It could go very bad for Notre Dame very quickly. It's almost like they're playing a college football schedule where you lose any any game within the first five and your chance of winning the Nash. It's not so much as bad as it used to be, but it used to be that bad. You, you drop one game that you're not supposed to, it could derail your whole season. And I'm not saying it's that serious for Notre Dame, but it's not good, and I would have liked to have seen them picked up some more games. What do they got here? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. They should be playing 14 games. They should have tried to pick up somebody like a Delaware, a Vermont, maybe even try to pick up a middling team that you really do think that you're going to beat still because Delaware would be a little bit scary at this point because they're so good. But, you know, that's my big disappointment. If they lose to either Marquette, Cleveland State, or Michigan and don't finish at least 9-3, and three, their season's likely over in terms of their ability to get an automatic bid to the NCAA or get a uh, at-large bid to the NCAA tournament. So, now we have one more thing to talk about here, and this is going to be – I'm trying not to show you my top uh, – and you can't see it here on the screen. I'm trying not to show you my top five, but you can see uh, if you go to laxfactor.com forward slash poll, it'll bring you to this page where I'm just going to keep my poll running. I have to put the vote in every week, so I'm just going to keep it tallied throughout the week. I'll keep the team's records in here and everything. Maybe we'll add some additional notes and crap like that, and then anything poll-specific, I'll uh, you know put the podcast stuff will be down here. But – one thing I changed by the time I got to my voting, uh, I think I did it yesterday, I had decided, I think I had Brown at number 12, or maybe they were at number 13. Based on my research and ev- what everyone else has done, I oddly, I bumped Brown completely out. I shuffled a couple of other teams here as well. I ended up bumping Denver, and I put both Boston U and Delaware ahead of Denver because I legitimately believe if Boston U or Delaware played Denver tomorrow, I got to thinking, okay, yeah, you know, these two teams had more success last year than Denver did, so why am I not rewarding them? And then when it comes down to the talent that's returning, uh, both of these teams have everybody back, and Denver lost, uh, you know, a buttload of people. So it's like, why wouldn't I end up putting them ahead? So I did bump Delaware and Boston U up. I bumped Denver and Harvard down. I believe I actually caused Jacksonville to frog jump a little bit. And, uh, and I, I brought Navy in, uh, and put them in as my 20th. I was between St. Joseph's and Navy. And I decided to go with Navy. So those were the changes I made to my poll. I'm going to do my number. I'm not going to let you see it here, but I am going to do my numbers five, through one, uh, that will be on Wednesday's episode, uh, and we'll be done with the top 20 preseason poll. And at that point, I'm going to have to start literally previewing games because we'll have games coming up, I think, the following weekend after that. So we're going to go heavy here. I didn't do PBLA and NLL action this week because it took it takes me a really long time to write these games up. So I will get back into those once I complete the uh, top five on Wednesday, and then that following weekend we can start talking about you know in the week the weeks leading up to the to the uh, actual college season we can start talking about PBLA and NLL a little bit more. So I apologize for that. I apologize for not putting a video out Friday for a film review. Once again, I ended up putting my time into starting to write this, and uh, that's it, everybody. So I am actually you're you're probably watching this Sunday morning. I'm actually. Um, recording this on Saturday afternoon, getting ready for the Giants game. So hopefully by the time you're watching this, the Giants will have defeated the evil Philadelphia Eagles. If you are a Philly fan, today you are my enemy uh, and you are dead to me. Uh, Other than that, we're cool. 
But uh, that's it, everyone. Come back Wednesday. I'll finish this list off, numbers five through number one, and then we'll get into you know starting to preview the upcoming games. We'll start doing some betting talk and all of that crap as we get close. College Across is almost upon us, so be sure to like, subscribe, share the shit out of this podcast with everyone that you know and love so that they can be better informed before they bet on lacrosse or when they talk to their buddies about lacrosse and so on. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Like I said, I'm your host, Ted Hoost, the hardest working man in the lacrosse podcasting game. And uh, that's it. I'm going to shut the hell up. Hoost is out. The Lapse Factor Podcast.